this week, Mandolin Wilson Rosen and I are back with part two. That's right, you heard. Part two of Giorgio Vasari's Lives of the Artists, a high Renaissance combo bio from 1568 or so. We just couldn't squeeze it all into an hour. It was impossible. When last we left off, we were just about to get into Botticelli, Pontormo, Da Vinci, Michelangelo, Raphael, et al. So let's get right back to the show and find out more about this author's life and all his famous artist friends in 1500s Florence. You are listening to Pep Talks for Artists, a podcast offering small words of encouragement to all those shuffling along the artist's road. I'm your host, Amy Toledo. Okay, so we're back with Vasari's Lives, part two. Um, Because it was too much to pack into one episode, but we didn't want to cut anything because it's all so good. So what we're going to do is pick up again with Sandro Botticelli. Mandy, I believe that's your artist. Please proceed. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, so Botticelli. If you Google Botticelli, you come up with um, you know a head of a woman, probably from his famous painting Primavera. Most of us have seen a Botticelli painting in one form or another. Or the Birth of Venus is another you know heavy hitter. Um, Sandro Botticelli was born in 1445 in Florence and died in 1510. So he was only 65 when he died, not 78 like Vasari says. <laughs> you know, again, not too. Mm, we're uh, watching you, Vasari. Not too specific with the details. Um, so it's interesting because Botticelli was not his birth name. He was originally born to a guy called Mariani Filippi, but but he was kind of a restless kid. He exasperated his dad with what Vasari called his restless mind, and you know wasn't a good student. And so you know again, as as you, as they did, pops found him a, a, a workshop to to you know ship him off to be an apprentice, and he becomes an apprentice to a goldsmith. A friend of his dad, whose name was Botticelli, so he took on his name. Um, he decided he wanted to study painting. So then, you know, Pops decides, okay, well, you, you still need an apprenticeship. So he goes from Botticelli's workshop to none other than Fra Filippo Lippi, and becomes his apprentice. Which is interesting because we have this this chain. Uh, Filippo's yes. son, as we mentioned, Filippino Lippi, would later become Botticelli's apprentice. Uh, a few years hence. But it's in Fra Filippo Lippi's workshop that Botticelli really, you know, starts to take painting seriously and decides, you know, I'm going to do this. So this was a funny chapter because uh, Vasari says that Botticelli was quite the prankster. Botticelli played a joke on one of his own students once he had sort of, you know, uh, his career had gotten going and he had some apprentices of his own. Um, one young pupil named Biagio, he, um, Botticelli had arranged for Biagio's painting, Biagio's own painting, to be sold to a citizen in the town and suggested that Biagio hang it up in the shop, in, in Botticelli's shop, the night before the buyer was to come. So it would be all hung properly and shown in the right light. 
And so Biagio does this. And after he goes home, Botticelli impishly decides he's going to pull a prank. And he covers up the heads of all the angels in Biagio's little painting with teeny little red paper hats so that they looked like cardinals, I guess, in the fashion of the day. And he stuck them on with wax onto all the little figures and all, all the angels uh, in the painting. So the next day, Biagio um, oh. comes in with his buyer, you know, ready to show off the painting that he had so painstakingly hung up the night before. And the buyer, who was also in on the joke, says nothing. He just, you know, kind of looks at it approvingly <laughs> and studies it very seriously and, you know, praises the work and uh, walks out. And then Biagio, you know, leaves to go out and get paid. And you could tell, you know, he's completely um, perplexed and he's sweating and, uh, but he, he follows the buyer out. And meanwhile, Botticelli removes, quickly removes all the hats. <laughs> and, uh, when they come back in, Biagio thinks he's dreaming and he, you know, he thinks he's being crazy because he, because they were just there a second ago. And, um, and, you know, and Botticelli and all the other apprentices, you know, go along and they're like, yeah, what's wrong with you? Like, what are you talking about? Paper hats. I don't see anything. Um, so yeah, it used to drive him crazy. And then another time, Botticelli supposedly balanced a huge stone on the roof of his own cottage that was threateningly close to the roof of his neighbor. Um, and, and the reason was this neighbor was a weaver who had refused to do anything about all the noise coming from his weaving shop, all the noisy fumes, like day in and day out were driving Botticelli mad. And uh, so he, he like, you know, sort of cantilevered this big boulder on his house and said, uh, yeah, I can, I can take that away if you want to <laughs> comply with my request to pipe down. Hilarious. Be a better neighbor. So um, I thought that was funny. You know, good old Sandro was pretty. Uh, a little bit of a jokester. Pretty much a jokester. Um, so, you know, a couple of the famous works that I, that I found fascinating to read about were, of course, the birth of Venus. So, you know, this is the one, the naked Venus on the open clam shell with the, you know, the Zephyrus winds blowing behind her. Um, this was painted in 1484. And, and Botticelli had Cosimo de' Medici as his mm. patron, the famous Medici yeah. family. This was in Florence. And it's a gorgeous painting. You know, it's kind of undeniable. B Botticelli arrives at this style of figures that is sort of unmistakable. Um, his style of the, the finest lines, um, some of the, you know, there's less of a naturalistic um, light and shadow effect and more of an outline to some of the features that he gets away with because they're so beautiful, uh, according to Vasari. Um, you know, this is an interesting painting, actually, because typically a nude woman was used to symbolize shame and sin and vice. But here she is representing beauty, perfection and even sexuality. So, you know, I, I, I read this interesting article on Artsy by Alexa Gotthardt just a couple of years ago, 2019, where she kind of opened, you know, my eyes to that, that fact about this painting. It's, or, or at least, a, you know, a theory, some, some critics like think. the male gaze is born there. Well, that, that's one reading of it. Sure. That, that it's for the male gaze. Or that um, was the first objectification painting of sorts. Maybe. Yeah. That, that what he's doing is kind of flipping the script on the nude, you know, taking it out of the realm of shame and saying, look, it's good. You know, she's beautiful. So yeah, I think all of those things could be true. Um, and then there's the famous painting Primavera 
which this and the Venus are mentioned um, just briefly in Vasari. Again, he kind of glosses over some of these artists' most famous works that we, you know, kind of cling to today. Um, they're mentioned in a group of, quote, round paintings by Vasari, but I wondered if he was alluding to studies because sometimes there were smaller rondels that were, you know, made as a sketch or study for a larger work. But that's really the only point in the, in the chapter where he talks about Primavera and the Venus and then <laughs> I thought it was funny. So Botticelli is one of the examples where the friends in high places and all the commissions that come in don't necessarily you know, mean for a big retirement at the end of your career, because he was, I guess, sort of a spendthrift. Um, he paints the Adoration of the Magi in 1475 in the Church of Santa Maria Novella in Florence, which includes portraits of the Medicis as the kings. You know, as the Magi. <laughs> and then, um, and he also slips in a self-portrait and he's made famous by this painting. Uh, people go nuts over it, probably not least because there's some very influential people, the Medici family kind of touting it as well as Vasari and others, but he's, he's made famous by this painting. So he goes to Rome to do a commission by the Pope. This time it's Pope Sixtus IV. And uh, according to Vasari, living in, quote, his usual haphazard fashion, he squanders all his earnings while he's there. Like he spends them right there. He doesn't even save them. He just spends it all in Rome. But he goes back to Florence and he gets interested in illustrating Dante's Inferno. Remember Dante, who was friend of Giotto? Um, the Inferno is out and everybody loves it, especially Botticelli. Giotto's and BFS. Yeah. And he, uh, Botticelli decides he wants to illustrate, you know, the nine circles of hell and he wants to work with Dante and make an illustrated version. And this is a big waste of time, according to Vasari. He says, he, uh, quote, he wasted a great deal of time uh, on this. And there was this religious sect called the Piagnoni, which in Ooh. Italian means the Snivellers. Oh, no. And he's, he's spent the some snivellers. time. Yeah, he gets like wrapped up in this cult, basically. <laughs> um, so between the snivellers and his like dilly dallying with the illustrations of the Inferno, <laughs> you know, Vasari is just like, oh, he wastes years until he's rescued, quote unquote, by Lorenzo de' Medici, Cosmo's um, son, I think, and, and other wealthy friends who kind of, you know, get him back to doing big commissions. So other works that are mentioned in the chapter are the Bardi Chapel altarpiece, which is very famous in Florence, and the Ogni Santi fresco, which translates to many saints, all saints in Italian. It's uh, There's a portrait of St. Augustine within it, and it's this huge sort of, you know, almost like a dome of the heavens where it's it's like we're seeing a balcony and a mezzanine above a mezzanine of just levels of saints kind of reaching upward. And you kind of wonder, was this influenced by, you know, Dante, reading Dante, the way he pictures these different levels of all the saints in, in the heavens above? I don't know where that fresco is specifically, but others might. Um, and then he paints the Assumption of the Virgin and so Vasari gossips about this painting, you know, one of the many religious scenes that he's commissioned to make. And then there were critics who accused Botticelli and the donor, Matteo Palmieri, of heresy for this painting, probably out of jealousy, according to Vasari. He said that, you know, anyone who would have cr critiqued this painting was probably just jealous. Just jealous. Of, of his pictorial mastery. Um, <laughs> of course. 
So yes, it was actually a relatively short chapter on on Botticelli, which I thought was interesting considering he spends so much more time on other artists. So you can kind of start to see where his favorites are. Yeah. And also like maybe he didn't, I mean, he doesn't know at that moment who's going to really shake out. You know, it's kind of telling, you know, when you're in the time, you're a member of the time, you can't really see the future of who's going to like, you know, fall through the filter of art history. Right. And to us, Botticelli is like one of the biggest. And to him, he's like, hey, a couple pages will do. Yeah. Vasari could never have predicted all the coffee mugs and uh, <laughs> posters of the Primavera. You know, that were, exactly. Um... <laughs> okay. So that was excellent. I loved hearing about Sandro Botticelli and his prankster ways. <laughs> so we are now moving on to Jacopo. I found out how to pronounce that. Jacopo da Pontormo, who I have characterized as painfully shy, pooty perfectionist, and Albrecht Durer stan. Jacopo da Pontormo. Jacopo da Pontormo. Jacopo. He was born in 1494. Big shock in Florence. Again, he was painfully shy. According to Vasari, he was led astray by the Germans. Threw it all away because he got like obsessed with the German way of working. <laughs> um, he had, a, again, another sad story. Everyone he was related to pretty much died by the time he was 14. He loved calm, silence, and solitude. I mean, who doesn't? But he really, he really doubled down on the solitude angle. Um, Vasari accuses him of being stylistically fickle. A man without a firm and steady mind. I'm just like, ouch, dude. Ouch. Um, he had a soft and beautiful, graceful, lifelike style. So this is where like Vasari thinks he has this natural talent to be like this great Renaissance artist in the Italian way of lifelike beauty, soft, elegant, in balance, everything flowing into each other, colorful, graceful to him are the penultimate qualities of painting that are, you know, held intrinsically by the Italian artists. And he was particularly good at putis, in particular, as previously mentioned. And, you know, Michelangelo discovered him at age 19. So he's sort of a prodigy, uh, you know, precocious artist. Um, but I want to talk more about this accusation that Vasari levels on him of being almost like corrupted by Albrecht Durer. And I'm calling this the Albrecht Durer effect. So what happened was a number of engravings arrived in Italy from Germany by Albrecht Durer. And the artists in Florence and Venice and all the other places receiving these were so excited. They loved this new style, the Durer style was so exciting to them. And, you know, Durer's engravings were very like, I would say almost in a Piero fashion, very locked in, like everything was sort of symmetrical. The forms were a little more stiff. It didn't really prize like fluidity. It prized this sort of locked in geometric composition, which is just a different style, but it was very, very different from the Italian style. It wasn't really lifelike, like the Italians were aspiring to. More designed, I, I guess I would characterize it as. And so 
Pontormo gets this commission. The plague is raging in Florence, 1522. He has to flee the city. Sound familiar? <laughs> and he goes to uh, do a job at a cloister of the Certosa, which is, you know, kind of a suburb. And he's so excited about Durer, like everybody is. And he starts to try to, like, emulate the style in this fresco. So Vasari is just, like, beside himself with disappointment, <laughs> And, and just, he just says that the soldiers that he puts in the fresco are drawn in the German style with expressions so odd that they move anyone who sees them to feel compassion for the simplicity of the man who tried with so much patience and effort to learn what others avoid and attempt to lose in order to leave behind the style, which in its skill surpassed all the others and gave endless pleasure to everyone. So he's basically saying... Like, let's pity this person who had the Italian style in him. He was a prodigy. Michelangelo was like, good job. And he threw it all away to do this stiff German style. Like, what a crime. And a lot of his designs of the compositions of these, of these frescoes are kind of taken pretty strongly from Durer engravings. You'll see the same positioning of soldiers, the same kind of compositional devices. So he was... Like, there's no question he was influenced with a capital I. And so Vasari goes on because, like, you know, he just can't contain himself with his disappointment. Did Pontormo not know that the Germans and the Flemish come to these parts to learn the Italian style? That he, with such toil, tried as if it were bad to abandon and, you know, he says, so he's like looking at all these with utter despair and disappointment. Like you threw it all away, dude. And he's like, I guess if I'm going to say one positive thing. I could find one tiny good thing. There's one cupbearer. <laughs> There's like a guy in one of the frescoes that's holding a cup that that is in the old style. And he's approved. That tiny portion is approved by Vasari. Um, but then he goes on to say, you know, no one should believe that Jacopo is to be blamed because he imitated Albrecht Dürer in his compositions. Since this is no error, and many painters have done it, continue to do it, but rather because he employed the unadorned German style in everything, the garments, in expressions on their faces and in poses, which he should have avoided, since he possessed the modern style, completely in all its grace and beauty. So, you know, he's really horrified. And Pontormo, because he was a bit shy, he created a chapel commission in San Lorenzo, and he worked for 11 years in complete secrecy, and he wouldn't show anyone what he was working on. And what happened was he was so isolated that his secrecy led to some bizarre imagery because <laughs> he didn't have anyone to look at it. So there's two large torsos, two short legs and arms. It's lacking in skill and grace, according to Vasari, of course. And, you know, basically Vasari said it was a huge flop, barely reached the level of his past work. And he says, quote, from this one can see that anyone who wishes to do too much and almost force nature ruins the good with which nature has generously endowed him. But even so, he says there's something good to be found in each of his works, even the most forced. Um, so, yeah, if you were to look up an image of 
Jacopo de Pontormo, I would recommend Googling the Certosa Monastery, the Florence Charter House. You can see these frescoes he did and how similar they are to Albrecht Durer's engravings. That, that to me was very fascinating. Um, like there's a Durer piece called The Small Passion from 1511. And then Pontormo's fresco is 1523. So it's just basically 13 years later. And it's pretty, there's no question that, that it's based on that engraving. So that was interesting to see the uh, commingling of the countries and how the artists were influenced by each other. So it'll take a, take a deep bow on Pontormo. Um, I love that you picked out those two works in particular, Amy, and looking at those two side by side, it really is clear that, you know, he was influenced by Durer and that was so, that's so interesting to learn about. Yeah, I guess, um, you know, I feel like, I almost feel like there's an air of defensiveness in Vasari because he's so all in on Florentine art and the thought that there could be another art style or art community bubbling up in another country, to him, it's very threatening. And he feels like he has to come out guns blazing and, and like devalue it publicly. Right, which I, I thought that was so interesting just to think about that the way that different schools, you know, in, from different countries would even cross-pollinate, even back then, before, mm-hmm. you know, before what we think of as the age of the, the global village and, and um, you know, such cross-pollinating that's happening. Yeah, and it would day. just be like a single engraving would like flutter to earth <laughs> from right, Germany right. to Italy and it would cause a shockwave. And yeah, it was so many, so many artists and change their yeah. styles. It's very interesting. Right. So yet again, technology kind of, you know, helping artists influence each other. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. Engraving was um, like their internet. <laughs> yeah, that was so interesting, Amy. Thank you. Well, I'm glad you liked it. All right. So... Now, dun, 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 we go to Leonardo da Vinci, no other than the great Leonardo. Mandy, take it away. Yeah, I think, I think you know, a couple people have heard of him, Leonardo. <laughs> um, and it's so, it's so funny. So here, this is, I didn't mention this in the very beginning, but in the very beginning, of my copy, the George Bull translation from 1965, it's clear that Vasari lays out the book into three main parts. The first being Cimabue and Giotto, sort of like the bridge from the Byzantine era. The second being what he calls the flesh and blood artists, um, Donatello, Brunelleschi, Lorenzo Ghiberti, where, you know, the figures start to move from sort of these like stiff poses into more, you know, realism, naturalism. And then there's the third era, which begins with Leonardo da Vinci of the great masters. We have Leonardo, Michelangelo, Raphael, and everyone else. So in the beginning of this preface to part three, Vasari makes this distinction, this sort of clear demarcation that he decides there's a difference between the artists who came before Leonardo da Vinci and those who came after, which he decides is now the modern age. And isn't that funny, right? Art historians, you know, have always been debating, like, you know, when does modern art start? And, and uh, well, Vasari says it starts with Leonardo, who was born in 1452 in Florence and dies in Florence in 1519. So there's a quote where Vasari says, you know, at this time, those who were Leonardo's contemporaries, these artists forced themselves to try to do the impossible through their exertions. 
especially in their ugly foreshortenings and perspectives, which were as disagreeable to look at as they were difficult to do. And and this this is a part of a paragraph where he talks about how everyone was just trying to learn from the masters, right? They were just trying to sort of like copy Botticelli, copy a Piero della Francesca, um, you know, sort of study the master of their own workshop. But Leonardo does something different. He takes his own interests and kind of finds his own way. And so for Vasari, this is a big deal. He has that genius, right? Yeah. And this bio on Da Vinci is long. It is dense. There's a lot that he says about Da Vinci, and I will try to distill it, you know, as briefly as possible. (laughs) Do your best. Um, I know sometimes it just goes on and on. Yes, he goes on and on. And it's so funny because Vasari starts his bio by extolling his godly qualities. Oh, yeah, of course. You know, godlike. Not only does he have grace and talent, but he is an outstanding physical beauty, which this was shocking to me because (laughs) the famous self-portraits that we see of Da Vinci, he's an old man. and I know. Fascinated by the elderly and people with odd looking faces. And uh, I'll talk about that more later. But like um, he was more interested in an elderly sort of like bent body than um, than a young, you know, beautiful body. So we don't think of, of Leonardo as being kind of a hottie. But according to Vasari, he was very physically attractive, <laughs> um, which just, you know, proved his his godliness. Yes. And you know, we think of him as being this genius, this inventor, this Renaissance man who was sort of, you know, unique in in his inspiration as if he didn't have a master himself, but he did. He studied in the workshop of Andrea del Verrocchio, who was a painter, goldsmith, and sculptor. And that's where he studies geometry, sculpture, and architecture. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause you really do think of him as like someone who sprung fully formed. Like he, he wasn't under any kind of overwing of somebody else, but um, at least that's what history thinks of him as. Right. Yeah. So um, Vasari credits Leonardo with having all of the five qualities he cares about. And he lays this out in the Leonardo chapter. Sorry, I don't mean Leonardo, but I mean his work, good rule, order, proportion, design, and style, but beyond that, an inspired grace. So again, he cares about this grace, this sort of like esoteric quality of there being something else, you know, a je ne sais quoi that is just, you know, seemingly unattainable by anybody else. Big shock. Uh, Yeah. And he says that Da Vinci is one of the first artists whose figures seem to actually live and breathe, like, you know, would fool someone. Um, People would touch these paintings, you know, just incredulous that it was paint on on plaster or paint on panel. And the figures had a new naturalism. And this is what he's talking about. He says that even Piero della Francesca and his contemporaries had studied the rules so hard that that it sometimes resulted in this dry style. And it sounds Mm. like he was kind of talking about Durer and... Yeah, yeah, barbarians. Right, which is funny because he kind of turns on on Piero, you know? In the Piero chapter, he was all, um, you know, love (laughs) and roses. And here he is kind of throwing him under the bus. Well, uh, I was wondering about that. I was like, how can he Mm -hmm. turn from one person you know, Pontormo being so critical of his stiff figures and then, and then praise Piero, who is, I mean, beautifully stiff. Right. Right. Yeah. There was this kind of like, yeah, like higher order to the figures. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess, you know, it's just to sort of show off Leonardo's, you know, main kind of skills, which were that 
even, you know, surpassing Piero, the figures really could have stepped right out of the painting because they were so natural in their, their posture and the treatment of light, etc. So it was interesting to read about da Vinci's life, which, you know, I'm sure most people have heard what an inventor he was. And he really was, according to Vasari, he was an unruly student, like uh, Botticelli. I can't be controlled. Yeah, you know, an unruly mind. <laughs> A rebel. He stop delving into new things. And he even baffles his math teacher with his questions. You know, he asks so many questions that the teacher can't even answer because he's such a genius. Such a common theme. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The the student immediately outshining the master. Yeah, yeah, definitely the math master. So he takes up the lyre and he sings. He's really into music. He gets really into drawing. So again, Pops, his dad, takes him to study with Andrea Del Verrocchio. So he he does go to study in the workshop of another artist, but, you know, quickly outstrips him in uh, skill and fame. But he's still really young. And so while still a boy, he's fascinated with engineering and he comes up with all these engineering projects he wants to do. He becomes the first, according to Vasari, to propose turning the Arno River in Florence into a navigable canal to Pisa. And he writes out these plans in which it very clearly could be done. He designed mills and other water-powered devices, so he was interested in, you know, hydro power, which I thought was amazing. He was truly a Renaissance man, if I may. Yeah. But also, you know, this is important to Vasari. He was known to have a lovable disposition. He was a sweetie. He loved animals. He kept horses, purportedly, you know, to draw them as well as to ride them. But he did many anatomical drawings of horses. You can see these, you know, if you Google them. Vasari collected some of them, some engravings of horse anatomy drawings by da Vinci. But he loved animals so much that Vasari writes that he purportedly would, while strolling through the marketplace, you know, on a Saturday afternoon, he would buy birds in cages from one of the bird sellers and just let them free, just set them free, you know, just to let them go um, because he loved animals so much. Supposedly, he was a vegetarian as well, although this isn't in Vasari. I read this like sort of delving deeper into the into the wiki verse, but he sounded like a, a hardcore animal lover. So that's cool. He started many things without finishing. And this is this is the big takeaway <laughs> about Da Vinci. He was a huge procrastinator. You know, I, I wrote at the top of my notes, you know, never put off until tomorrow what you can do the day after tomorrow, because that, <laughs> was, that seemed to be his his credo. Um, he he started many works that he could never finish. And Vasari says this was because he was convinced that his hands for all their skill could never perfectly express the subtle and wonderful ideas of his imagination. Like he couldn't, he couldn't keep up with all of his ideas. He couldn't make them all. So that's his excuse. At least that's Vasari's excuse for Leonardo. Now, while he's still young and still in Verrocchio's workshop, he helped Verrocchio on a baptism scene. And according to Vasari, his angel was so much better than Verrocchio's figures in the same painting. That Verrocchio becomes ashamed and, quote, would never touch colors again. Tale as old as time. Yes. And this is a much disputed claim. Later on, you know, other art historians would point to works that were done, you know, after the recorded uh, episode and say that Vasari was full of hot air. But anyway, that's interesting to hear. And he... um he painted a shield, again, like the shield. This was something I guess people like to have done, you know, like they would come to these famous artists and say, would you paint this shield for me? And I could have it in my home as a, as a, you know, a conversation piece or a very, you know, valuable object. 
And so one of his father's workers brought him a shield, which according to Vasari was so poorly made. It was made out of wood and leather that Leonardo becomes obsessed with fixing it. First of all, he couldn't stand that it was so like shoddily made that he completely remakes it, you know, goes and like, you know, breaks out the lathe and like, you know, makes this perfect shield and gessos it. And he took so long to paint it that both the worker and Leonardo's dad forgot all about it. They stopped asking (laughs) because he never would finish it. And all the while he's studying what he what what his neighbors saw him doing were collecting lizards, crickets, bats, locusts, and other little animals. He would cart them into his studio, draw them, and he was making this like fearsome hybrid creature that would breathe fire, basically like creating a, a dragon, you know, from different parts, a composite dragon from observation um, that breathed fire. And even ignoring the stench of dead animals in his studio to try to get this perfect creature that he would paint on this shield for the so poor he, worker. He, he got bogged down a lot. Like he would yes, get he got bogged down analytical or maybe like yeah, he, ADHD. Like he would just be like, he what's, everything? what's everything? <laughs> he wanted it to be perfect. He didn't just want it to be a lizard. He wanted to be this like hybrid creature that didn't exist. But it was so lifelike that it, it scared the guy when he came to finally <laughs> pick up his pick up his shield you know he showed it to him in like a low light and he you know wasn't sure what he was looking at at first so, so like he wouldn't just half-ass he anything yeah he couldn't phone it in he was incapable of phoning it in so he he wanted in fact there's a quote that he wanted it to have the same effect of seeing the head of medusa mm. um, you know, so he he takes it to the hill so what else he had this habit of following odd looking people around town, following them around for hours until he had them clearly in his mind well enough that he could go back and draw them in his studio. So he was so, you know, fixated on people who stood out physically. And Vasari mentions that he has one of these, as I mentioned, uh, he has a sketch that Da Vinci did of Amerigo Vespucci. Oh, we might okay. Yes. Our, our country's namesake. Then he, there's another funny little story. Um, he makes a liar in the shape of a horse's head. He gets invited by the Duke of Milan, Ludovico Sforza, who we mentioned before, was in you know, some famous portraits. He, he was invited by the Duke to come hear the Duke, who was newly enamored of the lyre, play. So he was invited as an audience member. But Leo decides to bring his own silver lyre, which he made himself out of <laughs> silver in the shape of a horse's head. <laughs> and he slays all the other musicians with his musical talent, including the Duke. Of course, yeah. Classic overachiever. Yeah, well, and, you know, Vasari just, you know, he really turns up the the sauce when he talks about these people. He says, you know, not only did he slay everyone with his singing talent, but also his sparkling conversation um, <laughs> that the Duke has just won over and commissions a nativity. So, you know, and and the Duke, Ludovico Sforza, becomes his great patron, which enables, you know, more more artworks. So Leo now begins to study anatomy. He loves drawing in pen and ink. He drew cadavers that he himself had dissected. So, you know, he was part scientist, part art. You know, back then there was no, you know, differentiation, at least in some of these lives between art and science. And it was all, you know, one kind of life, one, one research. He dissected bodies, drew from them. Oh, not to mention that he was left-handed and drew everything in reverse. And you needed a mirror to view it properly, according to Vasari, which some people never figured out, but some scholars later, you know, figured out. Oh, when he did his anatomy and things. 
Yeah, that he did this on purpose. The liver would be on the wrong side of the body. Mm -hmm. So rather, yeah, instead of confusing himself, drawing with his left hand what he saw correctly, he would just draw everything backwards and and present it with a a mirror. You know, this is crazy. At least some drawings were made. He's always giving the max effort. Yeah, right. Why? Yeah, why do something simply when you could, you know, make it as difficult as possible? That would be his other motto. It's the opposite of the um, perfect, perfect circle. Yeah. The yeah, insult right. of the simplicity of some, was it, who was it yeah. that had the perfect circle? Was it? That was Giotto. Yeah. Giotto's. Giotto's O. The insult was to be as simple as Giotto's O. Mm-hmm. He was the opposite of that. Yeah. He was as difficult as the horse-headed liar, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he, now this is an interesting side story. There is this very beautiful assistant who Vasari calls Leo's very beautiful servant boy and mm. art assistant named Salai, S-A-L-A-I, who was kind of well-known. Um, and he had gorgeous curly ringlets. And there's a drawing that you can find online of Salai, the head of Salai, this curly-headed boy drawn by Leonardo. And Vasari has an engraving of that too. He mentions that. And he would become the model for many of Leo's paintings. So I was kind of curious about, you know, that relationship. Well, how old was Salai? Was he like... It doesn't say. It says that he was a boy. So I'm guessing a teenager, maybe. It's hard to know. Um, I thought that was an interesting figure. So now he snags... Leonardo snags a commission away from Filipino Lippi to do an old piece. He... uh, Because Filipino was such a modest guy and and Leonardo was known to be, you know, a a man of good character as well. But uh, purportedly, according to Vasari, he he talks his way into a commission that should have been Filipino lippies to do an altarpiece, but he never gets it done. He draws the cartoon, you know, the preparatory drawings and wowing everyone. Everyone talks all about it, which is of the Madonna with St. Anne and John the Baptist. You know, so sort of just one scene for this altarpiece, but he never finishes it. So Filipino got his commission back. Oh, Leonardo okay, yeah. was not able to get it done. So even though Leonardo was like this amazing, multi-talented you know, deity in Vasari's mind, ultimately his greatest Achilles heel is that he just couldn't finish anything. So, yeah. you know, you, you're only so good as what you can finish, I guess. Right. So <laughs> I love that about Leonardo, actually. Yeah. I love that. And I love his like inability not to, you know, get bogged down in the details. <laughs> what else? He had a pet lizard that he that he made a pair of wings out of wax and affixed them to him and a beard and horns and kept it in a box so that he could draw a dragon whenever he needed one. Um, he experimented with inflating wax tissue into balloon animals and would parade them around town. Um, and then he, so according to Vasari, he did this crazy thing where he inflated a bull intestine so large that it could fill an entire room. And he did that to make uh, visitors uncomfortable from time to time. He played with mirrors, tinkered with various oils and made varnishes for paint, made his own varnishes. And, you know, he was so into doing this stuff that one time the Pope exclaimed when Leonardo began a commission by distilling the plants for the varnish. This is how he starts the project. Let me first distill the plants. Yeah. First, we got to st- we got to go way back and we got to do it right. We got to do it the right yeah. way, not the fast way. The Pope says, oh, dear, this man will never do anything. Here he is thinking about <laughs> finishing the work before he even starts it. <laughs> so in his late 60s, according to Vasari, he makes his deathbed confession. He, he falls ill. And he's literally on his deathbed and he decides to accept Catholicism. And who does he take his sacrament from? 
none other than the king of France. They had become friends. Whoa, he was quite the charmer. Yep, dukes, popes, and and also the king of France, who actually was at his bedside in Leonardo's last moments, and he dies in the arms of the king. Wow. Which is, you know, pretty pretty good way to go, I guess, for the times. Asari says he was 75, but he was actually 67 when he died. And there's a quote. Asari says, because of his many wonderful gifts, although he accomplished far more in words than in deeds, his name and fame will never be extinguished. Yeah. Well, I mean, he was right. I love that. You know, some of them were only in words, not actually done. (laughs) Right. Amy here. Just popping in with a word from our sponsor, the wonderful New York Studio School. So, so many great artists have passed through and continue to pass through that school. The New York Studio School welcomes artists from around the world for part-time study, either virtually or in person, beginning this September. And in case you're wondering, artists do not have to be full-time students to enroll in these courses. The following are delightfully a la carte and open to all levels. Immerse yourself in drawing or sculpture during a two-week intensive marathon course beginning September 5th, which will present a wide range of art-making strategies, rigorous studio engagement, and personalized critique. Short but mighty, marathons can make a profound impact on an artist's practice, continuing far beyond the reach of each session. Or choose from over a dozen 11-week evening and weekend courses, beginning September 18th, also virtual or in-person, which are the ideal way for artists to experience the school's learning through making core philosophy and receive guidance from inspiring instructors. This fall, join the expansive New York Studio School community, either at their historic address on West 8th Street or virtually from your home studio. Visit nyss.org to learn more and enroll today. Um, So, you know, what are the works we're talking about? Of course, people are familiar with The Last Supper from 1495. It took until 1498. And actually, some people claim that the painting is unfinished. Vasari says that The Last Supper was never finished for fear of failure. Vasari describes this painting, which is created for the the Santa Maria della Grazia monks. I'm not sure exactly where, but Vasari talks about the Last Supper because of the emotions in the disciples' faces. And also, not the least, this amazing linen tablecloth, which is painted in such lifelike relief that it looks like you could pick up the very delicate fabric. So Leo does not finish the Last Supper. And you know, that's not the that's not the only thing that he doesn't finish. But of course, we, we've heard of the Mona Lisa, this painting, you know, one of the most famous paintings in the world, if not arguably the most famous painting in the world. According to Vasari, Leonardo works on the painting from 1503 to 1507, but it's still unfinished in 1517. <laughs> um, and, you know, people would say, yeah, it's 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 just, you know, par for the course. Um Vasari waxes poetic on the naturalism in the head of this woman. He says, the mouth joined to the flesh tints of the face by the red of the lip. You know, he just goes on and on. Yeah. Vasari says Leonardo purportedly hired jesters and musicians to keep Mona amused and oh. not melancholy looking because it was taking so long. Like she's is that why she has the slight smile because a jester is doing a somersault <laughs> next door to the easel or something. 
Yeah, that's that's Vasari's theory. <laughs> um, that her smile seems divine rather than human. And this was achieved because, you know, Leonardo was jumping through hoops to keep her happy. And she was holding back a giggle. Yeah. So now there is another famous portrait of Ginevra de Benci, which is talked about. Vasari has some sort of mixed up ideas about who she was. His accounts of who she was married to differ from what's in Wikipedia. So, um, you know, a little fuzzy on the details there. Then there's the Battle of Anghieri, again, an abandoned work, which he is commissioned to make for the Casa Vecchio, which is the town hall in Florence, noted for its impressive horse anatomy. <laughs> a lot of horses <laughs> jumping and prancing and falling and dying along with their riders. And Leonardo starts this painting and he does the cartoon and the cartoon is world renowned and copied by others. But the painting itself was too big to execute in oil, Leonardo decides. And so he abandons it and it's later finished by a couple of other people. So, you know, there are more works that we could mention, but those are the highlights that I got from the chapter. And um, yeah, I, I, I was sort of enamored of Leo's, you know, inability to finish a work. He's a starter, not a finisher. But also um, his, you know, being bogged down in the in the minutia of the projects. I could totally relate. Yeah, I remember we had done an episode before about procrastination, the perks and perils of procrastination. And I think we did a little like uh, example. We made an example of him as a poster boy for procrastination. Um, that was really fascinating. I loved learning all that stuff about the bull's bladder and and his love of animals and the gestures next to the Mona Lisa. Just those aren't really put into the Jansen's history of art. You know, you don't really get that color of their lives and what they did behind the scenes. So yeah, I think we're ready to move on to the next one. And we were finished with Leonardo. Yeah. So I am going to oh no. Michelangelo. Okay, okay, Michelangelo. Okay, so, all right. Um, thank you so much for that amazing account of Leonardo. Um, and so now another big hitter, heavyweight boxer champion is coming up. Michelangelo. Buonarroti. And let me tell you guys, this chapter was unreadable, literally unreadable. Water was pouring out of my eyeballs with boredom. Like I could not <laughs> wade. And I tried everything. I tried reading the book. I couldn't falling asleep. I fell asleep. Uh, tears were rolling out of my eyes. I said, let me get the audiobook. you know, uh, uh, listen to the audiobook in the car, zoning out, thinking of other things. I could not, literally could not focus on a single thing. And I, I kind of forced myself to get all the way up to the Sistine Chapel, like, you know, his most famous work. And I was just like, I can't, I can't, I can't. I was just like a person drowning in a river. So you may be wondering why, Amy, why, why was Michelangelo so difficult to read? I'm about to tell you, this is going to be the, this is going to be my accounting of Michelangelo, just why I couldn't read it. <laughs> okay. So basically the chapter is 74 pages. Okay. Uh, to put it in perspective, Titian was a mere 19 pages. Uh, Fra Lippi was nine. <laughs> so we're talking like, you know, four times as long. And I'm not saying that Michelangelo does not deserve 74 pages or to be the, the chunkiest part of the book. Of course, he was a master, a genius. Everyone agrees his work is amazing. 
But Vasari's fawning and drooling is like next level. It's literally like the Bible. It feels like the son of God was born and his name was Michelangelo. And, you know, the angels all sang his song. And let's just talk about that for the rest of the the chapter. And it, it's so boring. And it, there's a word for that one. It's not a biography, but it's something that's just a fawning sort of, uh, you know, gushing kind of situation. It's called a hagiography. Uh, maybe hagiography. I don't know how to pronounce that G, but let's call it a hagiography. Um, so it's just it's just impossible to read because it's just nothing but gushing and drooling and fawning. And just imagine somebody just saying like, oh, you know, Lady Gaga. She's the best. When she was born, music was never the same. And it, you just start to tune out, you know? There's no edge to it. There's no critical thinking. And this is kind of a a longer quote, but I'll, I'll read a bit of it. Um, he gushes, While the best and most industrious artists were laboring by the light of Giotto and his followers to give the world examples of such power as the benignity of their stars and the very character of their fantasies enabled them to command. And while desirous of imitating the perfection of nature by the excellence of art, they were struggling to attain that high comprehension, which many call intelligence and were universally tolling, but for the most part in vain, because the ruler of heaven was pleased to turn the eyes of his clemency towards the earth and guess where those eyes are going and perceiving the fruitlessness of so many labors including giotto the ardent studies pursued without any result and the presumptuous self-sufficiency of men which is farther from truth than is darkness from light he resolved by way of delivering us from such great errors to send to the world a spirit endowed with the universality of power in each art in each art and in every profession one capable of showing by himself alone what is the perfection of art in the sketch, the outline, the shadows, or the lights. One who could give relief to paintings and with an upright judgment could operate as perfectly in sculpture. Nay, nay, who was so highly accomplished in architecture also that he was able to render our habitation secure and commodious, healthy and cheerful well-proportioned and enriched with the varied ornaments of art. Okay, like who's going to be able to get through a whole chapter of that? That's 74 pages of that. You know, um, he mentioned that his wet nurse uh, was from a stone quarry in Arezzo, and that's where St. Francis received the stigmata. So he's already kind of equating Michelangelo with like this religious... Um, air like he you know he's nursing in this famous place where god gave the stigmata to saint francis um you know he has all the stories of outshining his masters he buddied up with lorenzo the magnificent he went to work in his castle and and you know sculpted in his garden and you know everyone loved him and he started getting many commissions in Rome. His first Pieta was very fine. And, you know, he even signed the girdle on the Mary figure. Here comes the girdle again. They really loved a girdle. Mary was always wearing her girdle. So he signed it. And that's like one of the, the only signatures he ever put on his work. There's a funny anecdote that I captured before I checked out. He was working on the, the David and the patron came up and was like, 
the nose is too big make it smaller and so michelangelo just went up there and like ground a little dust uh artificially to let it rain down on the patron so he thought he was removing some of the nose but in theory he wasn't (laughs) i mean in actuality he wasn't so you know here comes another gush another gushing gusher uh quote never Never since there has been produced so fine an attitude, so perfect a grace, such beauty of head, feet, and hands. Every part is replete with excellence. Nor is so much harmony and admirable art to be found in any other work. He that has seen this, therefore, need not care to see any production besides, whether of our time or those preceding it. I mean... That's what I'm talking about, you guys. Like, I hope you don't blame me, but like, this was like impossible. He, you know, he kept rising up the ranks. The popes loved him. Um, he's, you know, got this amazing lifelike style. And um, there's one last story about the Sistine Chapel where uh, I guess Raphael is like scheming to get him out of the project. And um, and the Pope was like a real sculpture guy, like he loves sculpture. And so Bramante, Raphael's friend, he was annoyed that the Pope preferred sculpture. So he schemed to convert him to painting in order to favor Raphael's best medium. So he's kind of like a wingman. Like he's like, hey, Pope, I know you like sculpture best, but we're going to try to convert you over to the painting team. So that way Raphael can really flourish under your you know, patronage. So he persuades the Pope to stop work on his own tomb by saying it's a bad omen and switch Michelangelo over to the painting project, which was the vaulted ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, because Michelangelo till this moment remember the marble dust was known as a sculptor. And so they hoped that switching Michelangelo to a painting project would expose him to failure and he would like fall on his face because that wasn't his like perfect medium. And then Raphael, Raphael could swoop in, save the project and become the hero of the entire chapel. That was their kind of loose plan. And also Michelangelo was known to be kind of like contemptuous and like kind of like fighting all the time so he might like you know be a thorn in the side of the pope by being on site and like causing strife and trouble and michelangelo was like party to the scheme in a lot of ways he's like i don't want this commission for i don't want it i don't want it but of course the pope insisted and he did an amazing job and we have the Sistine chapel but i just have to say like i feel guilty obviously for failing to read michelangelo but it was literally impossible. So my recommendation to the reader is to skip it. You know, like, it, it's not a lot of nuggets in there. It's not like all the other chapters where you're like, oh, yeah, it really brings them to life. This is just like a shellac, just an impenetrable polyurethane of aggrandizement that that you you cannot get a hold of. You're just sort of skating on this aggrandizing shellac and there's and there's nothing to be had inside except for this one uh nose reduction story. So anyway, that that's sort of my take. I know it's a quickie. Um but Mandy, um sadly we're gonna have to come back to you uh for Raphael's proper honoring because I, I had to I had to kind of like uh, throw in the towel on Michelangelo. I I thank you for your very um honest appraisal of this chapter. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and for, you know, giving it 
your best try. And, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I can understand that, uh, you know, after a while, it's just too much. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I'll pick up that that story between Michelangelo and, and Raphael. Oh, awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so moving on to Raphael, the, yeah. um, you know, I think if we were to ask Vasari about the Holy Trinity, he wouldn't say God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He would say Leonardo, Michelangelo, and Raphael. Yeah. I think that for him is the Holy Trinity, sort of the pinnacle of, of, um, of Italian painting and probably beyond, honestly, for him. Um, so Raphael was, was, um, also known as Raphael of Urbino because he was born in Urbino in 1483. Um, his full name was Raffaello Sanzio. And, and this chapter two was a long one. It was a mere 40 pages compared to Michelangelo's 70, but you know, still it was a, a slog. I found it pretty entertaining. I learned a lot about Raphael. Um, so I don't think I had quite the job that you did, Amy. Um, though Vasari definitely worships Raphael. It is, mm. um, 90% <laughs> uncritical praise yeah. uh, from start to finish, maybe even more. And, um, and, you know, you just had to kind of take that with a grain of salt and, um, but, but it is chock full of interesting facts. I learned that Raphael was not just a painter, but an architect, which is true of a lot of these artists. Um, and, you know, this idea of the Trinity of Masters with Leonardo and Michelangelo, it it persists even today. So Raphael was, um, he trained in his father's workshop. His father was a painter in the court of Urbino, so under the Duke of Urbino. Um, so he came by his talent naturally, you know, from, from his dad. Um, and he helped around his studio and learned from him and becomes attracted to art. His mom died when he was only eight and his father died when he was only 11. So he, you know, kind of like launches into manhood at the tender age of 11 and takes over his father's workshop, sort of managing the the other assistants and everything. But he soon begins to train with Pietro Perugino, who people might have heard of, Perugino. He studied and painted in Perugino's style. And Vasari says that their style was indistinguishable at this time, which is, you know, something we see over and over. Vasari... You know, again, it's a long chapter. Vasari kind of breaks it up into three main periods of Raphael's life. The Umbria years, where he's from, um, during which he travels to Città di Castello to do some churches and to Siena as well and back. The Florence years, you know, it's all about Florence for Vasari, where he gets famous by doing paintings in Perugino's style at first. And then he also sees the work of Leonardo and Michelangelo and everything changes. Vasari says that Raphael never does surpass Leonardo or Michelangelo in their naturalism, but very wisely instead goes after perfection in other areas, things that he knew he could master, like composition, lighting, landscape elements, drapery, and other details. So so he talks about this at length. Vasari says that, you know, he was smart not to even try to surpass Leonardo or Michelangelo in their in their figurative naturalism but he kind of like found ground where he could and he even has advice for us artists which i thought was interesting vasari says here that um it's a vasari pep talk yes it vasari's is. giving us a pep talk on pep yeah talk. we love a pep talk Yay. <laughs> he says that um he ta- you know so he talks about you know Raphael being unable to compete in these ways 
and um and you know not and deciding not to waste his time by imitating the style of Michelangelo or Leonardo. So he says his example might well have been followed by many contemporary artists who, because they have confined themselves to studying the works of Michelangelo, have failed to imitate him or reach his standard of perfection. Mm, uh -huh. um, but if they had followed Raphael, instead of wasting their time in creating a style that is very harsh and labored, that lacks charm and is defective in its color and invention, they would, by aiming at a Catholic excellence, which he uses Catholic with a, a small C, meaning, I think, austere. Oh, I see. Um, or, or maybe deliberate. I'm not sure what, what, he, what he means there. And trying to become proficient in the other fields of painting might have benefited themselves and everyone else. So that's some advice. <laughs> you know, kind of play to your own strengths, in other words. Like, Vasari. don't get discouraged if your hero, yeah. if your hero is like soaring you still have something to offer. <laughs> yeah, but I, li I like that. It's like, you know, do what you're good at. Don't worry about being somebody else. So uh, that's pretty good. That's true. Um, so, so then, so those are the Florence years. And then, in, and then the years in Rome where he's invited by the Pope. And this time it's Pope Julius II via his friend, the architect Bramante, as you mentioned, um, when you talked about Michelangelo, he's invited by Bramante to come to work on the Vatican Palace for the Pope. And he's given his own suite of rooms, his own apartments to decorate. The stanze, which means the rooms, di Raffaello, and they're famous, the, stan the stanze frescoes. And he, this is such a huge opportunity that he leaves in the middle of a, a different commission for a different family and shows up at the Vatican to find lots of other artists already working, Piero, Bramantino, Michelangelo. And so he throws himself into the project. And one of the rooms that he does is the Stanza della Signatura, the room of the signature. So according to Wikipedia, Vasari's account of what happens when is a little mixed up here. But, you know, as you mentioned, Amy, he is shown Michelangelo's work in a different part of the palace before they're open to the public. So like, like Michelangelo left the project in a huff, as you said, like to go do something else. And um, while he's away, Bramante sneaks him into the Michelangelo's rooms and shows him a peek and says, look at this. This is awesome. And and after that, according to Vasari, uh, Raphael starts, you know, developing his figures even more. He while working on the Vatican, he also has this simultaneous project uh, in, in another part of Rome in Trastevere, the famous painting of Galatea. You might have seen it where Galatea is depicted riding on the backs of these two dolphins. <laughs> really beautiful figure. And, and he, he, according to Vasari, you know, kind of like works the figure of Galatea in this new way that he sees Michelangelo working. And, you know, Michelangelo becomes pissed. He finds out that, he, that his rooms were shown to Raphael before they were open to the public. And imagine if you, you know, if someone came and snuck into your studio while you, you were in the middle of some stuff and showed you, you know, your work. Yeah. Like it one bit. So um, what else did I learn from this long chapter on Raphael? He's pressured by a cardinal to marry the cardinal's niece, but he's kind of a Romeo, you know, Casanova uh -huh. himself, Raphael, and he can't stop seeing mistresses. And so he never does marry, but he comes down with VD, which is misdiagnosed by a doctor as heat stroke. Oh, um, sorry, asserts that it is, you know, a venereal disease from all of his love affairs. And he died at the very young age of 37 on his birthday, which happened to be a good Friday. Of the um, venereal disease? Um, I'm not sure about that. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't follow necessarily. Oh, okay. 
It could be though. I'm that's not clear. I wondered about that too. Um, and he was buried in the Pantheon in Rome. And this was very much on purpose. He had designed his burial. He made out his will in the months before he died and, you know, had it all figured out that he would be buried in the Pantheon, which was a favorite place. So, you know, again, just like you mentioned uh, with Michelangelo, this chapter is just pretty hagiographic in itself. Vasari goes on and on worshiping Raphael. He describes his works and his life, you know, going on to say that he was universally loved by everyone, all artists, which we know is not true. Like Michelangelo and he didn't get along. Yeah. Not just artists, but all Catholic leaders and all of his assistants miraculously worked (laughs) in harmony because of Raphael's blessed manner. You know, like you just couldn't argue in his godlike presence. And even the animals loved Raphael, according to Vasari. Like butterflies were just coming down and alighting upon him. Yeah, deers were just, you know, deer were just laying their heads in his lap, I guess. (laughs) So, you know, major works mentioned by Vasari, there are just too many to mention here, too many Madonnas to mention, really. (laughs) Um, Some people might have heard of the Madonna of the Goldfinch. That was really early in his life. It was destroyed in a landslide after he made it but it was later restored. That's crazy. There are so many altarpieces and ornate paintings that he does in in situ for various commissions. But, you know, let's get back to these rooms in the Vatican because they're really astonishing. If anyone's been to see them. Yeah, I have. They're beautiful. You know what I'm talking about. And the most famous, as I mentioned, of the Raphael rooms which to be specific were began in 1509 and then continued after his death by assistance. So he, he dies in 1520, but the, the paintings, you know, still weren't finished at that point. So the most famous of which is the Stanza della Signatura. And that's a four painting room as were most of these rooms. The other rooms, uh, the other Raphael rooms being the Stanza del Eliodoro, which is about the life of Heliodorus, the Stanza del Borgo, which is about, a, a famous fire, fire in the Borgo. And then there's another room about the life of Constantine, the triumph of Christianity over paganism. But back to the Stanza della Signatura, it has one of Raphael's most famous paintings, which is the School of Athens. Uh, we talked about that in the last episode about this, this idea that theologians are reconciling philosophy and astrology with theology. Mm. Um, Christianity is coming into conversation with philosophy, uh, philosophers such as Diogenes, Aristotle, and Plato. This is such an amazing painting because it's like a who's who in the arts. It made me think of like a Robert Altman film full of famous cameos because (laughs) we have, you know, this is, this is uh, controversial. So many art historians have tried to figure out who's who, but it looks like, you know, according to Vasari, Michelangelo appears as Heraclitus. Mm -hmm. Leonardo appears. There's a portrait of Leonardo da Vinci as Plato. Um, Bramante is there. Raphael himself is in there as somebody. He's got to hook um, up Bramante. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He made it all happen, right? <laughs> Bramante was the one who ushered him in to the Pope's house. So, um, but, you know, the, the the IDs of various people are hypothetical and controversial depending on, you know, various scholars. They all kind of argue about it later on. But the Pope so loved this painting that he let Raphael demolish other works that were in the way. So he could keep going mm-hmm. into the room, though Raphael did try to use parts of them, like like the, you know, the semicircular dome shape that were designed by previous artists. 
So, you know, that was kind, according to Vasari. <laughs> At least, you know, he tried to recycle. Generous, generous of yeah. him. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and then he does these other, he does these other rooms, the life of Heliodorus, which has this famous painting, the deliverance of St. Peter. If anyone's seen this one, it's the one with the amazing backlit jail cell. Peter is in jail, but he's being set free by the angel of the Lord, which appears as this bright light. And we see this like really modern looking black grid of the jail cell in the foreground. So I remember being struck by that, you know, the one time I saw it in person at the Vatican. And then what else? You know, simultaneously, he's he's working on the Villa Farnesina, which is owned by the Chigi family in Trastevere in Rome. And that's when he, he makes the painting of Galatea after taking his illicit peek at, at Michelangelo's chapel. So... You know, this is an incredible painting, too. It's full of figures twisting. According to Vasari, Raphael's figures became more dynamic after seeing Michelangelo. Mm-hmm. That instead of being so upright like they are in the School of Athens, they're more like, you know, showing evidence of contrapposto, that like idea that the shoulders and the hips are at odd angles. Oh, yeah, the contrapposto. Yeah, that that Galatea painting every figure, every putti, you know, puto and every satyr and every nymph, they're all completely twisted. So he's showing off his new, you know, Michelangelo inspired skills. And Vasari says that Raphael was such an amorous guy that, you know, we kind of like someone else you mentioned earlier on. Yeah, that, the uh, Lippi, yeah, like Fra Filippo Lippi, the hedonist. Like, Yes, that he was always <laughs> indulging his sexual appetite instead of getting his work done. So Chigi, <laughs> the guy who hired him to work on Villa Farnesina, had to move one of Raphael's mistresses right into the work site, like gave her room to live in so that Raphael could finish the painting. Oh, God. These um, Italians, like they just crazy. need to calm down and get their yeah. work done. Yeah, well, at least Raphael was able to get the work done on like, <laughs> you know, poor Leonardo. Like so, take a break during the day. I know. I know. Like you can't wait. Right. So <laughs> there's so many other famous paintings. There's um, there's a portrait of Pope Leo X with two cardinals. People might recognize that as these kind of like stern looking, you know, three figures in red. And then there's this transfiguration of Christ painting that's really famous done in 1516 till 1520. It's the one with Christ in the huge white puffy cloud aloft. You know, he's sort of floating there with his feet dangling. And um, and then below him is a kneeling woman and a youth who is possessed that's being you know brought to Christ for healing. His eyes are rolling up in his head. Oh, wow. Um, like exorcist style. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's cool. It's a really dramatic figure in a really dramatic painting. And um, that's the last painting that he does before he dies. So you know, that, that in that way, that's sort of the best way I can kind of sum up the the 40 page chapter on on Raphael. But I thought it was fascinating to, you know, to learn that, that he was really influenced by Michelangelo, and that, you know, he kind of knew that he couldn't, he couldn't do what Michelangelo did, but he could sort of excel in his own ways, architecture, drapery, composition, overall composition, you know, he kind of excelled in those ways. Yeah. When you said that, it kind of reminded me of that like Matisse-Picasso rivalry where like two very talented, ambitious artists in the same town can really drive each other to, uh, you know, maybe unforeseen heights. The idea that you're 
inspired. You're so inspired, but also annoyed that they're so good. That makes you better. Yeah. That's what was going on. At least that's what Vasari saw was going on. It sounds pretty believable. Mm -hmm. Um, But that was, that was a hearty stew. Raphael (laughs) was a hearty stew uh, full of, you know, potatoes and a very thick, creamy stew with some cornstarch in there to cream it up. Yeah. That was good. Yeah. um, I enjoyed that very much. And so we're kind of nearing the end of our list. The last person is going to be a quickie. Again, it's Titian, which you wouldn't think, why is Titian a quickie? Uh, Because he's from Venice. And Vasari thinks like, you know what? Uh, Who cares about them? So uh, I I consider it to be a bit of a gloss over. My my, uh, little header for the Titian chapter is pretty good for a Venetian. (laughs) Just kind of the flavor of the piece of the chapter. Uh, He was born in Cadore, which is actually in the Alps, sort of outskirts of Venice, but kind of mountainous, um, 1487. And he learned from a teacher in Venice named Bellini to paint from life. But as forementioned, the artists of the region were swept away by the German style, which Vasari again says it was dry, harsh, and labored, end quote, because they they had and they had a durer in venice and he he uh, kind of sorrowful that the venetians were staying in this provincial mode and not imitating classical antiquity which is an aspiration that the um, florentine artists and the roman artists were trying to kind of connect back to the greek that classical greek style and he felt like the venetians were turning their back on that and on the looking towards germany and how dare so Titian is going to be viewed by Rosari under this umbrella of prejudice. And, you know, he did learn from a teacher who who had a more elegant style from Rome. He finished part of his teacher's fresco. And of course, it was so good that everyone congratulated Giorgione, his teacher, thinking that he himself had made it. But of course, it had been Titian. <laughs> so Giorgione... You you can tell the rest of the story, I'm sure. Felt humiliated and then seldom allowed himself to be seen. And he never wanted to be in Titian's company or be his friend. So this is all just the most predictable course of events for any artist of note in Vasari's account. Um, he was known for, in his time, for naturalistic color. I think of him as more of like a red. Wouldn't you call him someone who used red in 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 unique ways it's it's never mentioned um it's never mentioned at all and um you know titian did some commissions the duke alfonso of ferrara commissioned him to do a fresco and uh, vasari claims that the best part of all of his endeavors was a pudi urinating into a river and looking at himself in the water it's like, that's a great takeaway that like, okay, a great, huge fresco. Uh, you really did a good job on that uh, peeing pootie over there, uh, slap on the back. So it's a little bit dismissive. I think there's a obviously a bias there. He does credit him with his work seems alive. That's something that he keeps saying, like his work seems alive. It seems real. It seems fleshy. And he enjoyed working from life and it really showed. And I think in the Mannerist era, the high Renaissance, painting things that seemed alive 
was a goal. Um, and so if you were able to kind of, you know, as, as opposed to Durer, who's not really concerned with that, it's really prized if your figures seem like they could walk right off, that they seem full of life. Um, he was invited by the Pope to visit Rome and meet Raphael, but he procrastinated. <laughs> he procrastinated so long and he, he really didn't go to Rome until both the Pope and Raphael died. <laughs> and then <laughs> he didn't end up going there until 1546. And that's when he met Vasari. And Vasari took him on a little Roman sightseeing tour, which was kind of cute to imagine the two of them tooling about. Um, he also met Michelangelo on his trip. And he and Vasari clucked over Titian's work with Michelangelo I think quite rudely saying that he liked the style and coloring very much, but that it was a pity that artisans in Venice did not learn to draw well. And it's just like, dude, come on, like, ouch. And uh, physician heal thyself. Uh, it's not like Michelangelo's drawings are always like on point. Like there's many a softball boobed lady with male physique in his Sistine Chapel. It's not like Definitely. It's not like he's never ever made a drawing error. Like pot calling the kettle, like, you know, <laughs> you know, calm down over there. Uh, you know, the entire city of Venice doesn't draw well. Okay, uh, okay, coconut boobs. Uh, okay, <laughs> softball boobs. Whatever. <laughs> but anyway, he, you know, he's uh Titian did really well. He was, you know, commissioned by the Venice Senate. He even had rooms at the Fondaco, which is and a yearly living. So, you know, he was doing well. And here's the thing. I'm curious about Vasari and questioning whether he is himself anti-Semitic or just evoking the anti-Semitism of the time. Because, you know, we're talking about this city that's almost obsessed with Catholicism, obsessed with religion, obsessed with Jesus and that whole mythology. And so if you're Jewish, like, where do you fit in? You know, and there's a lot of kind of like comments in the book. He's always painting like, quote unquote, the Jewish as the bad guys. Um, you know, there was a, a Pope Paul IV from 1555 to 1559. So he's in the pocket, characterized with a strong nationalism. Um, his anti-Spanish outlook renewed the war between France and the Habsburgs. And he was fervently opposed to the presence of Jewish people in Rome and decreed the building of the city's ghetto within which the Roman Jewish people were forced to live and work. And, you know, I, I just question that because um, there was... There's been parts of this book. I mean, there's parts when he's describing scenes of the Bible where he's sort of speaking about the Jews, quote unquote, which I feel like it has a, it has a tone, you know, a questionable tone. Um, but there was another artist who where he's I think it was Michelangelo where he said, like, he made this Moses figure that seemed so lifelike and the shoes were so perfect and and the, and Jewish people would would pilgrimage to this statue because it, it it was like this religious icon to them. But there was just something again in the tone. Like, I wish I'd find an example. But anyway, I'm I, just things that make you go, hmm, a little yeah, bit. Yeah, and, and that's, wasn't it that very statue that has horns? You know, people thought that, yeah. um, that Moses was depicted with horns because it was a Jewish stereotype or, or that was like, but, oh, yeah. um, but there were other 
theories that there were supposed to be rays of light coming out of his head and that, that it's really controversial why that why that um, figure has horns. A lot of people attribute it to a racial stereotype. You know, I wouldn't put it. I mean, I think that's 100 percent likely. I mean, so there's just something to like kind of keep an eye out. I mean, it could be a, a cultural prejudice. Obviously, they were like obsessed with religion, their religion. I mean, th- their religion spawned this incredible art movement. But the dark side of that, of everyone kind of being in this one kind of, it has to be this one true way. The dark side is this sort of considering other, like even the Venetians or even the Germans or even anyone not on the team as this like suspect other. Um, And so reading that about the Pope Paul, um, many of the popes were very corrupt, was eye-opening. And it just made me think about how Vasari speaks about them, about that group of people in in Rome and Florence at the time, if you happened to not be Catholic, uh, you know, you were you were kind of thought less of or even put in a ghetto. So, um, yeah. And so anyway, I'm taking a little uh, uh, detour on that. But uh, but to wrap up the Titian, which was a bit short and light again, he said, like, every work was very alive. And he said, you know, you know, occasionally you'd see um this was a funny thing. Occasionally, a tousle-headed Mary Magdalene with red-rimmed eyes will inspire pity instead of lust. So again, it's like that male point of view too. Like, oh, oh, weird. You painted a woman that doesn't inspire lust. Oh, okay, okay. You're trying to inspire pity. What a revolutionary! You know, like what? Um, but most no, of the time, most of the time, he's just lauding him for being natural and alive. So, you know, it was a little bit of a, a lukewarm take on Titian. But but yeah, that's my that's my Titian spiel. I appreciate your questioning that, um, you know, the veiled antisemitism in Vasari. You know, I, I think that that is something that is kind of a, a caveat for readers of the book, you know, to, to understand that it's very specific time and place and you know even even more specific than we might know at first um in in his allegiances yeah yeah he was almost like just so part of his time and part of this group of people and so swept up in this whole like zeitgeist that he almost can't really see reality in a lot of ways and so that's you know it's indicative of the way he sees michelangelo and then and then contrasting how he sees Jewish people, he's just sort of like a guy sort of in a little bit of a mania. And so it's good to be aware when you when you wade in to the Vasari waters. Yes, definitely. Um, OK, awesome. So we really I feel like we really covered the heart of the book. I mean, of course, there were artists that we didn't cover because of the constraints of the podcast format. It would have just been too long. But there's lots more artists, especially people that are lesser known. But I just wanted to take this moment to just ask a big picture question. Mandy, I was wondering what you think. Like, do you recommend that an artist should read the book? Is it a satisfying read or did you feel you got a little bogged down, uh, too bogged down? Uh, was it too hey, geographical? And also, like, just what are our takeaways? I just wanted to broach the, the question. Great questions, Amy. Um, yeah, I mean, should should an art student read the book? I, I, I think 
Sure. You know, I, or an I'm artist a, in general. Mm-hmm, yeah. I think, I think that I'm, I'm in favor of, you know, kind of remembering art history. <laughs> I'm a student of art history lifelong. And so, yeah, I think it's worthwhile to kind of familiarize oneself with these names. Um, I found it helpful, actually, actually necessary to, while reading this, Google the works, try to figure out which works went with which description in Vasari. It, it took a bit of work, but uh, you know, I felt like that was really enlightening to, to look at the paintings, look at images of the paintings while reading it. Um, just like I did, you know, back in, in my art student days in person. And, and I think that's the best use of the book is to sort of like read Vasari's descriptions. So, yeah, I think it's worthwhile, you know, given the caveats we've said, you know, knowing that at times Vasari is, um, worshipful, you know, uncritically praising of certain artists, but not of others and, and hazy on the details some things I got out of it were I, I was amazed at the place and the status of the artist in popular culture back then. You know, the the yeah. sort of renown that these artists enjoy. Like they're rock stars. You yeah, know. they were. They were, you know, people were throwing money at them to do these <laughs> paintings. So no wonder they ran around and were so prolific, you know, hopping from Rome to Florence and, and Pisa and back again. So that that's that was pretty amazing to see. And also the setup of apprenticeship that was the rule of the day back then. Um, you know, it's, it's something that is fading or pretty much gone nowadays, especially maybe in America. I was thinking about that. Like, when did that die? Was it in, in American history? Like, was it abstract expressionism that kind of did away with that idea of studying under a master, you know, for once and for all or what, but. It's an interesting question. Yeah. I, it was, it came up recently in, um, an interview I did on this podcast in episode 49 with choreographer Julia Gley. And I remember a moment where she was like, you know, in dance, you are known to others as who you studied under. And that colors their impression of you from the first impression. Like they're like, who did you study with? Now I understand you. And I think there's a lot of parallels to this time in Florence and Rome to that. And she asked kind of like, is that true in in visual art? And I had to say, like, kind of, no, you don't really say, who did you study with? And then you understand everything about that person. Everyone's right. sort of this individual that's visual artists today are supposed to sort of spring fully formed from Zeus's head and not really need. You're supposed to be kind of like so true to your own soul that you don't really need a master, uh, which right. I think <laughs> is I think is silly. You know? <laughs> silly is the wrong word, but I just think like I think every artist needs mentorship. I think. Right. And people go to, you know, art programs, um, you know, Bachelor of Art programs and Master of Arts programs to study with specific individuals. And those individuals are touted on college websites and uh, those reputations are traded in for sure. So it's not fully gone away, but um, it exists in different ways. Definitely. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, I thought that was interesting to think about, but I also was really amazed by how relatable and readable the language was, the translation, mm-hmm. at least the one that I had of Vasari. And I felt like I was really stepping back into this world so many centuries ago and could look around at the art scene. It was really a realistic picture painted for us, you know, no pun intended, but, yeah. um, <laughs> and, you know, and finally I was humbled by the prolificness of these artists. Yeah. And their dedication, you know, kind of day in, day out, how they labored on these works and, you know, even failing to finish many, some of them. 
and just how devoted to art their lives were, you know, maybe even especially in the early years for some of the artists, that was the most interesting thing for me to, to find out what they were doing as young people, as children, as, you know, teens, how they spent their time. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think it's worthwhile. I think, you know, as you mentioned, you could probably skip some parts, but what do you think, Amy? Um, well, I just wanted to agree with everything you said. I, I, I wanted to talk about the ambition level of these people. Like they really went for it. Like they didn't, they didn't really hold back, you know, like they painted like this huge ceiling or whatever. Like they're just doing these crazy things, building tombs for popes. And obviously they had workshops and assistants galore and huge amounts of money, but the idea that you would just like conceive of these things and then, then the structure within the city would, would support you and you would really go outside of your own, you know, comfort level almost on every single project was very interesting to me that you would always be striving to do something even harder was inspiring to me. But, but in general, I like, I guess I, I thought the book was a bit of a slog, but I mm-hmm. felt like I really enjoyed seeing the artists as people like actual humans with love lives and petty jealousies and food preferences and OCD tendencies. You know, they had neuroses and it was refreshing to read about them in that way versus just this canonical, uh, canonical figures with big art historical resumes. You know, you, you see them listed next to all their work and you're just like, dang okay but to know to know them as people like what they like to eat you know what they did as a little joke or practical joke on their neighbor uh really brings them to life um in a nice way and uh, you know i like to think of it as like that people magazine like renaissance artists they're just like us you know like you just relate (laughs) you relate because you know somebody who loves to do practical Mm -hmm. jokes who gets mad at their neighbor for not trimming their tree or making too much noise i mean everyone can relate to that being annoyed at a neighbor who makes too much noise and like and like (laughs) scheming how to like take revenge on them like it's very much like as if there's no time between us it's not 500 years it's a second and I also really enjoyed reading about the lesser known names. I think just because Vasari is less starstruck and less drooly. And so you really get a more accessible story and narrative about the artist than, you know, these bigger names where he's so dazzled that you can't penetrate the polyurethane, you know, of praise. Um, It's like those polyurethane in the hardware store where they submerged a quarter in like the very thickest polyurethane and the quarter is like (laughs) under five inches of polyurethane. That's what I felt like Michelangelo was like. But then you go to these other ones like lip. I mean, they're also known, but, you know, lesser known. You know, they're not on tea towels, you know, Lippy or Pontormo. It's refreshing to learn about them. We should mention, you know, Again, that that there are so many artists that other people might be interested in reading about that we didn't even mention, like, you know, Donatello and mm-hmm. uh, Lorenzo Ghiberti and Mantegna, you know, not to mention Cimabue, the guy who started it all, according to <laughs> yeah. uh, that we just didn't have, you know, didn't have time to kind of go into it all. But yeah, um, Cimabue but was the source. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I also really appreciated all the gossip. I thought that was A+. Plus. And <laughs> I also wondered to myself... Because he always sets it up that these artists surpass their masters, and that's how we know that they're going to be great. Does it mean that the masters are masters because no students surpass them? Right. How do you, right? How do you get to that level of mastery? And also, it was interesting too. Like some people say, like, "Oh, look at an art forum from you know 1975." 
and you won't recognize any of the names. And it shows you how current fashions in art always are changing and that people who are having success right now aren't necessarily the artists that history will remember. And it was very indicative in Vasari's lives of the artists also, because like even looking at the Botticelli chapter or the Titian chapter, he's not really aware of how famous these artists are going to be to future generations. And, and uh, he can't see it. It's right in front of his face, but he can't see it because he's, he's too much part of his, his time. And, and it was like an encouraging reminder to me too, that like uh, the current art world is not the, eventual art historical record, you know, to not get discouraged with rejections, et cetera, because, you know, you still got a shot. Right. And, <laughs> and hopefully going forward, you know, there will be more voices, more, more people than just Vasari, than just, you know, the big, the Harold Rosenbergs of the 1950s, you know, the people who get to say who ends up in the, in the historical record and who doesn't. Hopefully, you know, going forward, there will just be more stories told, more art histories told and become aware of more artists. Yeah. And I think Vasari was like the only one. He controlled the narrative. And so it's also like a reminder to us that history is in our hands and we just need to put our voices out there and writing, et cetera, like contribute to the historical record and elevate voices that we think are important. You know, don't just let it all be in the hands of that one guy, Giorgio. You know, take back the night, um, take back the writing night uh, or the historical night, art historical night. But yeah, this was amazing. I can't believe we pulled it off. <laughs> so it's like very intense book. But um, I think we I feel like I feel satisfied that we did a good job on it. I am so grateful that you were willing to read this book <laughs> with me, reread it in my case and, and having completely forgotten it, you know, so many years before. And and yeah, it was we spent months on on this reread and we Yeah, what did you say you said we started planning this podcast episode when? January. <laughs> January. So we're recording this in early July. Wow. So you could do the math. It was like <laughs> 6 months ago. <laughs> we really put our heart and soul into into, you know, thinking about this book. So Yeah, we thank kept you. kicking the can. We were just like, <laughs> "Oh my god, okay. Whew, I need another month." Yeah, it's like a little tiny paperback. It's like the size of like a little romance novel from the That's grocery store. Insane. And then you crack that baby open and it's like, oh, no, this is not yeah. like it's going to take months to. Yeah, not, really but, but I think if you had it by your, you know, your bedside table, you had it in the living room and you just like read about an art, like a lesser known artist once in a while, you would feel enriched by the book, I think. Yes. And again, I would recommend, you know, kind of having the visuals at the ready as a way to kind of fully understand what, what Giorgio is talking about. Yeah, I agree. The internet in one hand and the paperback in the other. Well, a superb book talks, Mandy, as always. Uh, I love when you come on, it just feels like everything's right with the world. And I'm looking forward to what we choose next for our next book series. Uh, The reader or the writer, no, the listener will have to wait on tenderhooks to find out more. But I feel like we've given them a lot. We've given them two very long episodes. <laughs> we'll talk them over for a while and let a lot of catch our breath before we pick another tome. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much for inviting me back. And uh, it's always a pleasure to talk book talks with you, Amy. It's very uh, fulfilling for me. So thank you. Okay. Well, uh, until next time, talk to you later. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Pep Talks for Artists. 
Grazie ancora, Mandy, for helping me tackle this jam-packed, occasionally hagiographic Cinquecento time capsule from Renaissance Italy. I literally could not have done it without you. And in that spirit, I'll leave us all with an old Tuscan proverb. What was hard to suffer is sweet to remember. And talking about this book with you, Mandy, made all the Michelangelo suffering only a happy memory. Please visit Mandolin Wilson Rosen online at mandolinwilsonrosen.com or on Instagram at mandolin underscore Rosen. And remember, mandolin is spelled M-A-N-D-O-L-Y-N. And also, please visit Pep Talks for Artists on Instagram too, at Pep Talks for Artists. Thank you so much for listening and for stopping by. I appreciate all y'all, and I'll see you next time. Okay, coconut boobs. Uh, Okay, softball boobs.